The following podcast refers to money as the precious. We're busy taking the ring to Mordor, but wanted to remind you that this podcast is general guidance only. You should consider this guidance further in the context of your own financial situation and needs. For advice to suit your needs, please see the financial professionals for individualised advice. In fact, we'd be merry and pippin if you did. Any media clips have been clipped out the public domain under the Fair Use and Fair Dealing Guidelines. Money talks, money walks, money climbs, money falls, money sings, money fights, money bites. Welcome to an episode of Money and Pop Culture by Money Bites, the podcast that makes money bite-sized. In this pop culture show, we delve into the media archive to show you what we can learn about money from the TV show songs and, of course, films that you love. Now, this episode is what we can learn about money from The Queen's Gambit, that much-loved chess series. Now, let's delve into the series where Beth is just about to answer a phone call from her father, who she hasn't spoken to in a while. Roll the tape. It's Beth, Mr. Wheatley. Beth. Daughter? Elizabeth Harmon? You're in Mexico? It's about Mrs. Wheatley. How is Alma? Is she there with you? She's dead. She died this morning. Mr. Wheatley. Could you handle this for me? I can't be going off to Mexico. There's an autopsy in the morning, and I have to buy new plane tickets. I mean, I have to get a new ticket for myself. I don't know where to bury her. Called Durgan Brothers in Lexington. There's a family plot in her maiden name, Benson. What about the house? Look, I don't want any part of this. I got problems enough here in Denver. Get her up to Kentucky and bury her. And the house is yours. Just make the mortgage payments. Need money? I don't know. I don't know how much it'll cost. I heard you're doing all right. The child prodigy thing. Can't you charge her or something? I'll ask the hotel. Good, you do that. I'm strapped for cash right now, but... Call Second National Bank. Ask for Mr. Ehrlich. Tell him I want you to have the house. He knows how to reach me. This is painful in terms of how self-absorbed her father is, that she has to give her full name before calling her his daughter, because her name alone wasn't enough to identify her by. So as background, this is Beth's adoptive father, Mr. Wheatley. He adopted Beth because he worked away from home and his wife felt lonely. He effectively abandons his family during the series. So Beth has called to tell him his wife's died and he won't even go to the funeral. This is what estranged families look like in 1960s America. Now, Mr. Wheatley makes a verbal agreement with Beth that if she handles the funeral, she can have the house. Now, this verbal agreement could be made permanent because he gives her the name of a contact at the bank to transfer the mortgage payments over to her, as in his words, he wants her to have the house. Now, this also means she takes some financial responsibility to keep the house. What this means, and when he says the payments, is this house isn't paid off in that he's not just handing her an asset. There's a mortgage owed on it, and if she doesn't make the mortgage payments and she defaults on her mortgage, it's her problem and she's liable, not her father. He asks her if she needs money, but it seems really insincere because then he tells her to go and get the tournament organizers to pay for her change in flights. Now, if there was a will, I'm presuming these decisions around funeral planning or who gets the house would have been a lot easier as they would be predetermined by the person who's died. So this is really where the value of a detailed and notarized will comes into effect, particularly in families like this where communication has broken down. Hello? This is Dick Chenault. Um, 
Your lawyer? I tried to get you three times yesterday and the day before. Where have you been? In Paris, playing chess. How sweet it must be. What is it I can do for you, Mr. Chenault? Uh, it's, uh, it's Wheatley. He doesn't want to sign. Sign what? Title for the house. Can you get over here so we can work it out? I don't see why you would need me. You're the lawyer. And he said he would sign whatever was necessary, so. Well, apparently he's changed his mind. So Beth hasn't been picking up her landline phone because she's been flying around the world at international chess tournaments as a pro chess player. It's a pretty nice life. The series is set in the 1960s, so mobile phones haven't been invented yet and getting messages to you is harder when you're traveling. So the lawyer is speaking to Mr. Wheatley, who we heard from in the first clip. Mr. Wheatley gave her a verbal agreement to give her the house, which he's now canceling. Now lawyers will tell you the value of having something in writing and ensuring it's legally binding. Verbal agreements are difficult to prove. Now, unless the contact that Mr. Wheatley had at the bank and whom I'm presuming Beth spoke to to make the mortgage repayments actually comes in and corroborates the agreement, it's going to be really difficult and Beth's dad could take back the house that Beth's been paying off all this time. As a young woman in the 1960s who is independent to the extent she's making these mortgage repayments herself, to lose that house because someone wants to take it back at the last minute seems horrible and I really hope he fails for that reason, but let's see. Mr. Wheatley has a proposal. You can live here while you're looking for something permanent. I thought I could keep the house if I made the payments. Uh, Mr. Wheatley says you misconstrued him. He uh, claims he was just permitting you to stay in the house uh, until you got settled. That's not true. He said I could have it. Remember? Can't you even look at me? You adopted me. Can't you talk to me? Alma. Alma wanted a child. You signed the papers. You took on a responsibility. Alma wanted to adopt you, not me. You're not entitled to everything I own just because I signed some papers to shut her up. Not that it worked. You adopted me. I didn't ask you to. You're my legal father. The money in this house is mine. No smart-ass orphan's gonna take it away from me. No, I'm not an orphan. I'm your daughter. Not in my bookyard. So the value of the lawyer is that he's there to outline the proposal to Beth. It's interesting as a power structure because clearly these two guys who are coming into the scene have already talked about it. Now Beth is working under the previous agreement, understanding that if she pays the mortgage each month, she can keep the house. Because it's not in writing, her father, if you can call him that, gets to accuse her of misconstruing him, which is really slimy behavior. When Alma died, we saw the agreement being made that if Beth organized the funeral and made the mortgage payments, the house would be hers. There should be a record of that with the bank, but it's likely missing if this is being disputed now with lawyers. Now, Beth is actually in the right when she says she's legally his daughter. The moment you adopt someone, they stop becoming an orphan and they are legally your child. You have responsibilities to care for them until they reach adulthood or they are legally emancipated, which in most family courts is around 18. So it doesn't really matter if he considers his daughter not his. Beth is legally his daughter, and she's likely entitled to some of Alma's estate because of that, particularly when she spent more time with Alma than Mr. Wheatley did towards the end of Alma's life. This is pretty tense, so let's see how it resolves. That woman could not keep her mouth shut. Thought the piano would help. It didn't. So here you are. Oh, so pathetic. Did you ever hear her play? Of course. Yes, but did you ever really listen? Alma was not pathetic. She was stuck. There's a difference. She didn't know how to get out of it. Pathetic? Well, 
I'm looking at pathetic. What do you want from Beth, Mr. Wheatley? I want her out. I'm selling the house. Sell it to me. What are you talking about? I'll buy it. I'll pay whatever your equity is. It's worth more than that now. How much more? I need 7,000. Your equity is less than five. It's seven. I'll show you the receipts. Fine. 7,000. You have that much? Yes. But I will be subtracting what I paid to bury mother. I'll show you the receipts. Okay, so this is making a statement about the position of women in 1960s America. Alma is apparently stuck, but Beth clearly is the one who got that it was because she couldn't pursue the dream she wanted. Not because of who she was as a person, but because of the context at the time and how it limited her. Now, the lawyer is really there to play a mediatory role, and he's very valuable in this in moving the conversation from emotion back to outcomes. So good lawyer, Beth. You should keep him on retainer. Beth buys the house because it's her home that she lived in with her mother. So it's emotional value because her father was barely there for her. It's to retain that sense of who she was. She's clearly made a lot of money from her chess tournaments because she's offering to buy the house from her father and in a position to do so. Now, when they talk about how much and when they argue about the equity left in the house, the equity is the amount of money in the home minus the amount owed on it. So if you ever hear about equity, that's what they're referring to. An example of that, if you live in a house worth $600,000 and you owe $200,000 on the mortgage, your equity is $400,000. It's the 1960s, so house prices are a lot lower and they're debating whether the equity is worth $5,000 or $7,000. That means whether Beth needs to pay her father $5,000 or $7,000 to buy the house from him because she's paying him that equity. And she will still need to make the mortgage repayments as well. Let's just keep that in mind. The fact he's got receipts or the value in writing means he's going to win that argument. So he's going to be able to ask for $7,000, but he's also the owner and in a position of power. So he could sell it to someone else. Now, Beth agrees to pay him the higher price. So 7,000, not 5,000, but she minuses the funeral cost she paid to bury his wife. Yeah, it's clearly a bitter relationship. And the fact they're both relying on written receipts rather than trust tells you that there's no trust left in this relationship. Dear Miss Harmon, as we have been unable to reach you by telephone, we are writing to determine your interest in the support of Christian Crusade in your forthcoming competition in the USSR. Christian Crusade is a nonprofit organization dedicated to the opening of closed doors to the message of Christ. We have found your career as a trainee of a Christian institution, the Methuen Home, noteworthy. We would like to help you in your forthcoming struggle since we share your Christian ideals and aspirations. If you are interested in our support, please contact our offices in Houston. Yours in Christ, Crawford Walker. Take the money. They're loaded. They pay for my ticket to Russia? More than that. If you need to play another match before, they'll back you. And if you ask them, They'll fly me out there with you. Separate rooms, of course, considering their views. Why would they pay so much money? They want us to beat communists for Jesus. These are the same people that paid for part of my way two years ago. Okay, so this is a sponsorship offer. They're offering to provide support or financial support to Beth. It's kind of like how if you're a fan of tennis, a lot of tennis players have partnerships with sports clothing brands. And they wear those sports clothing brands when they play because they're endorsing that brand. 
Now, this sponsorship may pay for Beth's upcoming tournament, likely her travel and accommodation costs. She's effectively being pitched to be their ambassador for the cause, just like the brand ambassadors I referenced today. It's like how a hair care company will approach a celebrity or an influencer on Instagram with beautiful shiny hair to represent them and their product. This Christian crusade organization see Beth as a Christian like them because she was raised in an orphanage. She's a product of a Christian institution and would likely share their ideals. That's their assumption they're making. Now, when Beth discusses this with Benny on the phone, he shares that he previously took their financial support to attend a chess tournament. We see that the cash is dependent on signing up to their ideals, though, because if Benny were flown out to be with Beth, they would be in separate rooms as the organization doesn't believe in sex before marriage. So by taking their money, Beth is really signing up to represent their ideals. And this is binding because, as you'll see, when celebrities behave badly, they often lose sponsorships because they fail to live up to those ideals. What we would really like from you, Elizabeth, would be some kind of statement. Statement? Christian Crusade would like you to make your position public. In a world where so many keep silent. What position is that? As we know, the spread of communism is also the spread of atheism. I suppose so. Oh, it's not a matter of supposing. It's a matter of fact of Marxist-Leninist fact. The holy word is anathema to the Kremlin and the atheists who sit there. I have no quarrel with that. Good. What we want is a statement to that effect. To the press? Exactly. We had something prepared. There you go. I'm a chess player. Of course you are, my dear. But you're also a Christian. I'm not sure about that. Ooh, the I'm not sure about that, that's an issue because Beth has been approached by this organization because of her assumed Christian beliefs. They've seen she's grown up in a Christian institution, so assumed that must be her belief. And in taking their money, she's kind of confirmed that assumption. Beth clearly finds the public statement they've prepared jarring. She didn't seem to mind making a statement, but the way they've pre-written it for her is starting to take away her voice. And I imagine in 1960s America, just as it would be now, that's uncomfortable. And it can happen, though, when a company pays for your time, like how public servants are paid a good wage, but they lose their right to express a public opinion. When a company pays for your time, you are making that deal. And that can really include committing to those ideals. The fact Beth is saying she doesn't, that poses a problem for this organization and their future dealings with Beth. Look, I have no intention of saying anything like this. Why not? Because it's nonsense. Christian Crusade has already invested a good deal of money. We paid for your last trip to San Francisco. We were all very proud of you. And we've already spent a good deal more on your upcoming trip to the Soviet Union. Okay. Fine. I'll give it all back. So Beth writes them a check to give them back all their money. All the money they've invested in her so far. And they're angry because they invested their money in her as a kind of ambassador, but also their time and their energy. They say they're proud of her, not just that they paid for things. They've been really building her up as a future ambassador. She's paying them back financially, so she no longer owes them anything, though. And she can sever that relationship. So this is the value of having wealth. We talk a lot about the value of emergency funds. Having savings means that Beth can get out of this situation quickly. Are the tickets paid for? No. Nothing's paid for. You understand you gotta pay in tourists for the hotel in advance. I know that. I have 2,000 in my bank account. It would be more, but I've been keeping up the house. It's gonna take a thousand more to do it. At least that. 
I was wondering. I don't have it. What do you mean? You've got money. I don't have it. Did you gamble it all away? What difference does it make? You can call the Federation or the State Department. The Federation doesn't like me. They think I haven't done as much for chess as I could have. Because she paid back Christian Crusade, she now needs more money than she has to go to Moscow. She didn't budget for the additional expenses that she would have to pay back to that organisation that they've already spent. She asked Benny for the money, but he says he doesn't have it and suggests other sources. They're not tied together financially and there's no obligation on him to give her that money. Now, it's interesting the Chess Federation, given she's a chess player, wouldn't give her the money, but clearly she hasn't represented their interests as much as she could have. So it's unlikely that they would then financially commit to her. Let's see where she can get this money from. State Department, please hold. Cultural affairs, O'Malley speaking. Hello. $3,000? Yes, straight away. I'll see what I can do. I'll get back to you in an hour. An hour? No dice. I'm terribly sorry. But there's just no way government funds could be handed out to you without more time and approval. Don't you have some petty cash or something? I don't need funds to undermine the government in Moscow. I just need money for my trip. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. But we will be sending one of our men with you. Keep you safe. So Beth's calling the federal government, referred to in the US as the State Department. They don't give her the money because it's government. Now, giving someone money needs to go through an approvals process so that it's transparent. So this is not the government being mean to Beth. I see a lot of the time on social media, people getting really angry because the government won't give them money. It's due to the fact the money isn't the government's to give, it's taxpayers' money. So any money given out by the government needs to go through an approvals process so that it can be shown to be legitimate, like a grants application process, so that it's transparent and it's properly managed, it takes time to go through. The government approvals process is not quick enough for best situation. She'll need to find another funding source. I shouldn't have bought the house or all those dresses. 3,000 is a lot. It's expensive to go to Moscow. I'll give it to you. What? No, you just said it's a lot of money. I haven't and more. I haven't saved it. You need it for law school. I do. And you'll give it back when you win. What if I don't win? It's still worth it. Or you could give me the black dress. Or the purple one. <laughs> I like them. <laughs> So as background, Beth and her childhood best friend Jolene, who she grew up with, have recently reunited and they're discussing Beth's upcoming tournament and the fact she can't go. Now Jolene's quite successful, she's become a paralegal and she's able to save money to go to law school and yet she's willing to give a chunk of those savings to Beth to fund her Moscow trip. To do that takes huge faith. Jolene clearly has faith in her friend to win the tournament and the winnings that would enable Beth to then pay her back because remember she can't pay her back right now. If you're going to lend a friend money, I really suggest you do it only if you can afford not to see that sum of money again, because there is a huge risk you won't, particularly if there's no certainty of them paying you back. You could draw up a legal agreement though, which sets the terms of the loan if you do want to go ahead with that, so that you're both on the same page in terms of when they need to repay you, or what happens if they can't pay you back that money that you've loaned them. I'm really interested to see why Jolene's doing this, particularly if she hasn't spoken to her in a while. 
and she needs that money for law school. You're like my guardian angel. Hey, Beth. Shabo isn't the only one who kept after you all these years. I know how you lost to Benny Watts in Vegas and then beat him in Ohio. I read the papers. Even on a group trip in the town, I spent my ice cream money on the damn chess magazine had your ugly face on it. For a time, that was all you had. And for a time, you was all I had. We weren't orphans. Not as long as we had each other. You understand what I'm saying? I'm not your guardian angel. I'm not here to save you. No, I can barely save me. I'm here because you need me to be here. It's what family does. It's what we are. It's Beth's instinct to call Jolene her guardian angel, but I really like that the film removes that stereotype. In a lot of films, characters can behave badly because another supporting character will always show up to save them. Jolene removes that label straight away and she clarifies she's helping Beth out financially because she's family and that's what family does. Plus, she fully expects to be paid back and even starts saying if it can't be monetary, it could be a different type of asset, like a particular expensive dress that she's had her eye on. Now, we do want to acknowledge some people have community expectations around lending or giving money to family. If you want to make that choice, just ensure you can afford to do so and it won't push you further into debt because if you do go into debt to help them, you'll be no future help to them at all. Now let's see how Beth goes in winning her competition. The president has invited you to the White House. There'll be a chessboard set up in the Oval Office and of course a photo op of you kicking his ass. Texas being more of a checker state. There's a dinner tonight after the reception at the Russian Chess Club in Georgetown. A lot of prominent dissidents belong, so we've prepared a list of talking points. It's a big deal, beating the Soviets at their own game. Could you stop the car, please? I'd like to walk. To the airport? You're gonna miss the flight. Rahman. Lisa Rahman. Da. Harman. Sagraim. <laughs> <laughs> This is my favourite ending because it shows how financial freedom gives us choices. Beth can get out of the car because she doesn't owe the State Department anything. They refuse to give her the financial support to attend the Moscow tournament, so she's free to get out of that car and not be their ambassador. 
So she doesn't have to meet with the president or be this anti-Soviet symbol because she's not tied to them financially. Interestingly, the point she rejects them, though, is when they mention she'll have to read from their prepared talkie points, just like how she rejected Christian Crusade when they gave her that prepared statement she would have to read to the press. She's rejecting being financially tied to people and losing her voice in that process. When she gets out of the car and walks around Moscow, her fellow chess players recognise her, not as an American symbol, but as Beth Harmon, the chess player. Like how Alma wanted to be truly listened to, Beth wanted to be seen, and she finally is, by her peers, as a chess grandmaster. Beth has her own voice, which in the 1960s for women is an awesome achievement. Well done, Beth. So what did we learn? Here's what we learned about money from watching The Queen's Gambit. Number one, money gives women choices. While Beth's mother was stuck in a loveless marriage, Beth's winnings enable her and her mother to travel and experience freedom. Alma starts to break free and Beth doesn't have to sign up to that restrictive marriage contract like her mother because she's got her own money and she doesn't need a man for financial security. Number two, taking money from organizations ties you to their values. Beth finds herself stuck and forced to potentially sign a statement she doesn't agree with because she accepted money from that organization to be their ambassador. And to get out of it, she has to repay the money. Be aware that when you accept sponsorship in that way, you're tying yourself to whoever you accept money from and entering a power dynamic. So make sure you're clear on who they really are before you take their money. Number three, don't overextend yourself financially. Beth almost misses out on the tournament of her career because she spent too much money. She commits to paying off a mortgage on a large family home. She spends way too much on dresses. She redecorates her home from top to bottom and then pays back the Christian organization a huge sum of money. While she had the money at the time to make those spending decisions, the money is limited and she then doesn't have enough money to afford to travel to Moscow. It's only through the unexpected generosity of a childhood friend lending her the money at the last minute which allows her to go on the trip. Make sure you budget for the important stuff so you're not put in a similar situation because we can't always have people to swoop in at the last minute and save us. And those are our takeaways about money from the Queen's Gambit. The following podcast is Hasta la Vista Baby to Bad Debt. It's important to remember that this podcast is general in nature and can't account for your individual circumstances. If you want individualized financial advice to suit your needs, you'll need to book in with a licensed financial professional In fact, we'd be thrilled if you did, and we'll be back. Any media clips have been clipped out the public domain under the Fair Use and Fair Dealing guidelines. You've been listening to another episode of Money and Pop Culture by Money Bites. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been awesome having you. If you like what you heard, we'd love your support in spreading the word. So share the podcast with those you love. And please click down and write us a little review while you're here because it really helps us out. If you want to hear more from us, head online to moneybytes.com and give us a recommendation of what you want to hear about next. And for updates on your social media feed, you can follow us at Moneybytes. You can also subscribe for updates on this very platform to ensure you never miss an episode. It's absolutely free and it'll be the best investment you can make. Stay tuned for more bite-sized chat about money right here on Moneybytes. <laughs>